Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T, and a capital UK, or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk. Now, on with the show. Today's event happened in the year 1925. But what else happened that year? Well, on April the 10th, F. Scott Fitzgerald publishes The Great Gatsby. On May the 8th, African-American Tom Lee rescues 32 people from the sinking steamboat M.E. Norman on the Mississippi River. On the 29th of May, British explorer Percy Fawcett sends a last telegram to his wife before he disappears in the Amazon. On the 31st of August, Anthropologist Margaret Mead lands in American Samoa to begin nine months of fieldwork that will culminate in her 1928 book, Coming of Age in Samoa. The best-selling book will become the first popular anthropological study and will change many attitudes towards tribal people. And on the 28th of November, the weekly country music variety radio programme, Grand Ole Opry, is first broadcast on WSM Radio in Nashville, Tennessee, as the WSM Barn Dance. But our tale starts just before Christmas of 1925. And it concerns Edward Charles Ingram Richards, aged 25, the tall, debonair son of Mr and Mrs W.F. Richards, of the old Ring of Bells pub, North Bradley. He was a married man with one child, a daughter, aged two years and he was one of the most popular of his generation in the area. Always genial and ready with a smile, he'd willingly lend a hand to a pal that was down, and was regarded with the highest esteem by all his colleagues at the brewery where he worked. In 1917, at nearly 18 years old, he joined the Royal Air Force, and when Armistice Day came the following year, he was a cadet in training for his pilot certificate. He was also, for a time, a member of the Usher's Fire Brigade, and later a junior officer in the town brigade. Word of the week. Brace yourself, guys, for this week I give you... Blatherskite, which means a person who talks at great length without making much sense. I'm not going to name names here, but I know quite a few people like that. Edward Richards, or Ted as he likes to be called, 
was a travelling salesman employed by Usher's Wiltshire Brewery, and it had been a longer day than usual on Wednesday the 23rd of December because of the upcoming festive season, and he spent the evening in Bath visiting an old friend in the Abbey Wine Vaults. He then drove home and left his car at the brewery, saying goodnight to a fellow work employee, George Gay, on his way out, heading towards his home in Victoria Road. His young wife and child were not at home, as they had already gone to her parents' house at Highworth, near Swindon, the venue for that year's Christmas celebrations. Later that night, Mr and Mrs Stoughton, who also lived in the same house as the victim, were awoken by the noise of a violent altercation, and then they heard shots fired. Then a motorcycle was heard to be started up and driven off at high speed. Moans were heard from the garden and Mr Stoughton raised the alarm. The police and a doctor were immediately called for. Mr Richards was found lying in the garden with cuts and other wounds to his head. Dr Roger Wright immediately ordered the injured man to be moved to the cottage hospital, which is where the gunshot wounds were discovered. Edward died 15 minutes after arrival. His parents would later say, Life will never again be the same for us. He was always a splendid boy to us in every way. And whatever could have made anybody want to do anything like this to him, we cannot imagine. He was a friend to everybody he knew. Would never do anything to hurt anyone. He trusted everybody. And he's given or lent pounds to people whom he thought were in need. On Christmas Day, Superintendent A.E. Underwood, Chief Officer of the Trowbridge and Bradford Division, Wiltshire Constabulary, arrested Ian Ronald Maxwell Stewart, a bombardier in E-Battery, RHA, at Trowbridge Barracks at 6.20pm, and John Lincoln, also a bombardier in E-Battery, at 41 Timbrell Street at 7pm, on suspicion of committing the murder. It was discovered that Maxwell Stewart was acquainted with the victim, Edward Richards, having been to his house and attending Bath rugby matches together. On Boxing Day, the two accused men were first before the magistrates, sitting at the police station at 11am. Superintendent Underwood stated that Stewart, when arrested, made no comment. They then went to the house in Timbrell Street, the home of John Lincoln's fiancée, Lily's parents, where a Christmas party was in full swing to arrest Lincoln, who said, I'll come quietly. For God's sake, don't break up the Christmas party. The others at the party just assumed that he was needed at back at the barracks and were shocked to find out he'd been arrested. The funeral for Edward Richards was held on the 30th of December 1925 at North Bradley Churchyard, attended by several fire brigades and a large number of members of the Order of the Buffaloes. And as you would expect with such a high-profile case, there was a huge number of onlookers lining the route of the funeral procession. The inquest resumed on New Year's Day, and Superintendent Underwood gave evidence that when he arrived at the house, Edward Richards had told him that they had kicked him in the stomach, and that there were two men, one tall and the other short. At the scene, there was £40 worth of treasury notes and a large number of cheques in Richard's pocket. Seven cartridge cases from an automatic pistol were found in or just outside the house near the back door. 
Dr Walker Hall, pathologist, said death was due to the bullet wounds, either of which would have been fatal. The inquest was adjourned until January the 4th, but it didn't actually resume until the 8th of January, when the prisoners were once again brought before the magistrates, and the case was sent to trial at the Assizes. So, on the 20th of January, in Devizes, the trial opened before Justice Talbot. A letter was read out written by Lincoln to his sweetheart, Lily Brown of Trowbridge, in which he admitted firing at Richards and told the whole story of the events of the early morning of December the 23rd. At the close of the case for the Crown, a point was raised that there was no evidence to suggest that Maxwell Stewart was armed or that he knew Lincoln was armed, so he was entitled to acquittal. And after legal argument, the judge directed the jury to find Maxwell Stewart not guilty, which they did and he was put back on trial for the second count of attempted robbery with violence, for which he was also found not guilty, but immediately re-arrested for burglary, for which he was remanded. Book of the Week This week's book is A Wiltshire Year, The History of England in One County. England was born in Wiltshire when King Alfred won the Battle of Ethandune in 878 and one of Wiltshire's famous white horses still guards the side. Long before that, Stonehenge was the most populous place in Europe and the site of a great midwinter feast. And so this book weaves its tale through history with various different events, such as the Black Death and Brunel's creation of the Great Western Railway. Written by Greg Pullen, who's lived in Wiltshire for 50 years, his writing has been published in national newspapers and magazines, and three books for the Crowwood Press, a Wiltshire is the second self-published book. On January the 21st, John Lincoln gave evidence and told a remarkable tale, admitting firing his pistol which he was in the habit of carrying. He fired at Richard seven times, as well as hitting him in the head with a beer bottle. Not surprisingly, Lincoln was found guilty and sentenced to death. John Lincoln tried to appeal, but the Home Secretary saw no reason to recommend the interference with the sentence. John Lincoln, whose real name was Ignatius Timothy Trebitch Lincoln, aged 26, was executed on the morning of Tuesday, the 2nd of March, 1926, at Shepton Mallet Jail. On the afternoon of the Monday before, he was visited by his mother, who had travelled from Hamburg to see him, and two brothers, Mr Julius Lincoln and Mr Eddie Lincoln, as well as his girlfriend, Lily Brown of Trowbridge. Talking about the visit to see his younger brother... John behaved like a British soldier... Only for a minute or two yesterday did he falter in his fortitude, and that was when Mother all but collapsed. What really caught the attention of the nation was Lincoln's father, Trebitch Lincoln, once a member of Parliament who was convicted and deported from the country as a spy, and had since been living in various countries and had been trying desperately to reach his son before the execution for one last meeting. The Home Office had granted him permission to enter the country under certain restrictions and to visit his son in Shepton Mallet, but he didn't arrive. 
and there were rumours that the execution might even be postponed to give him more time. But they proved to be just that, rumours. Julius was the only relative to stay in Shepton Mallet. He wanted to see his father, and he wanted to visit his brother one last time with his father. But when he heard the news that his father wasn't going to turn up, he broke down and wept. There was quite a large crowd outside the gates of the jail, waiting to catch a glimpse of the notorious father. On the morning of the execution, Lincoln refused breakfast after a restless night and spent the morning playing cribbage with the wardens until 8am. He left behind letters to the chaplain of the jail saying thank you for all his comforting words, as well as letters to his parents and Lily Brown. He never lost hope that he might see his father one last time. He read a letter from his mother, Margaret Lincoln, saying, My boy, this is not the end, but we will meet again, and you will await me at the gates of heaven. My boy, all my life I will remember you, and I look forward to our reunion. Famous executioner Pierre Pont was assigned the duty that day, and Lincoln walked firmly and quietly from his cell to the scaffold, escorted by six warders. At his final destination, he stood to attention to meet his doom. From his cell to his death, only took a matter of moments. There was no tolling bell or hoisting of the black flag, long associated in the public mind with such events as this, and the only way the crowd outside knew the deed had been done was when the following black-edged notice was posted onto the gates at 8.15am. Declaration of the Sheriff and Others we, the undersigned, hereby declare that the judgment of death was on this day executed on John Lincoln in His Majesty's prison at Shepton Mallet in our presence. I, Charles Rosser Bishop, surgeon of His Majesty's prison at Shepton Mallet, hereby certify that I have this day examined the body of John Lincoln on whom the judgment of death was passed, and on that examination I found that the said John Lincoln was dead. When John Lincoln's father found out about his son's death sentence, he was living as a monk in a Buddhist monastery in Salem. He applied immediately for permission to leave for England, but was constantly hindered by lack of funds. He travelled under the name Dr Tandler. The deal given by the Home Office in the end was that if he arrived in time to see his son, he would be allowed to stay in the country for ten days under police supervision. If he didn't, then he wouldn't be allowed in. During his whole torturous journey to try and get back, he wrote or cabled his wife each day to let her know how he was getting on. Elaborate arrangements had been made to get Trebitch Lincoln to the jail in time. He had to get to London by the night before, and in order to do this, he had to reach Victoria Station in London by the Continental Mail by 5.15. But he wasn't on that train, as he had failed to catch his connection in France. Trebitch hoped he would be able to make the journey from Marseille by plane but didn't have enough money and although funds were telegraphed over to him, 
There was a misunderstanding of the Home Office and he didn't get the remittance. In the end, he was short by just £15. Eventually, Trebitsch managed to get to Holland, but that was two days after the execution. When the realisation of his failure dawned on him, Trebitsch returned to China where he started political work for the Nationalists. He took an oath that he would bring about the death of thousands of Englishmen because of the execution of his son. Murderer John Lincoln's mother wrote a letter to the victim's widow, saying, Dear Mrs Richards, It is indeed difficult to write to you in these sad circumstances. I want you to feel that my sympathy for you and your dear child is not merely empty words. It is very real. From the bottom of my heart, I am sorry. My own sorrow is great, but how much more so must be yours? It has been so great a shock to me. I cannot realise that it is my own son. I cannot understand how he could have thought of crime. He has always been a good son to me. So kind and gentle. What can I do? I can only pray that comfort and strength will be given you to bear this terrible loss and help you through these trying circumstances. I wish it was in my power to help you in some way. I do not know what the future has in store. It is in God's hands. I believe he will be merciful to both of us. Remember this and take fresh heart. God sees all, God knows all, and God writes all. God requires all. Let us trust him. With heartfelt sympathy, yours sincerely, Margaret Lincoln. But who was the mysterious father that didn't make it? Ignatius Timothy Trebech Lincoln was a Hungarian adventurer and convicted con artist of Jewish descent. He spent parts of his life as a Protestant missionary, Anglican priest, British Member of Parliament for Darlington, German right-wing politician and spy, as well as a Nazi collaborator and Buddhist abbot in China. In the years leading up to the outbreak of the First World War, he was involved in a variety of failed commercial endeavours, living for a time in Bucharest, hoping to make money in the oil industry. Back in London with no money, he offered his services to the British government as a spy. When he was rejected, he went to the Netherlands and made contact with the Germans, who employed him as a double agent. Returning to England, he narrowly escaped arrest, leaving for the United States in 1915, where he made contact with the German military attaché, Franz von Papen. Papen was instructed by Berlin to have nothing to do with him, whereupon Trebitsch sold his story to the New York World magazine, which published under the banner headline Revelation of I.T.T. Lincoln, former member of parliament who became a spy. His book, Revelations of an International Spy, was published by Robert M. McBride in New York in 1916. The British government, anxious to avoid any embarrassment, 
employed the Pinkerton Agency to track down the renegade. He was returned to England not on a charge of espionage, which was not covered by the Anglo-American Extradition Treaty, but of fraud, far more apt in the circumstances. He served three years at Parkhurst Prison on the Isle of Wight and was released and deported in 1919. His British nationality was revoked by the Home Secretary on the 3rd of December 1918. In response to a letter protesting the Holocaust, which Trebek Lincoln had written to Hitler, the Nazi High Command requested that Japanese forces poison Trebek Lincoln after they invaded Shanghai in 1943. The response to this request is not known. However, Trebek Lincoln did die of stomach trouble in Shanghai in 1943, aged 64. News just in. Bristol Crown Court this morning heard the statement of Mr Dave Williams of Littlestoke. He said that his neighbour, Mr Derek Clements, started banging on his wall at 3am on Saturday morning. Luckily, he said, he was still up playing music. Mr Clements then shouted, Can we have a little respect, please? To which Dave replied, Great choice. I love Eurasia. everyone, I'm Andrea, And I'm Mariah. And we're the hosts of Pretty Nice. The weekly podcast where we talk anything and everything. Like horoscopes. Why rain is the worst. Our favorite Broadway musicals. The best songs of all time. Embarrassing Facebook photos. Elevator etiquette. Breakfast revolutions. And a whole bunch of other nonsense. If you love a podcast that feels like you're kicking back with your BFFs or just hanging out and chatting with friends, Pretty Nice is for you. You can check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Buzzsprout, or your preferred podcatcher. We're also online at prettynicepodcast.com, on Instagram at prettynicepodcast, Twitter at prettynicepod, and Facebook at prettynicepodcast. Bye! Bye! Back in the day facts. On the 8th of May, one of the oldest surviving customs of the UK, the Helston Furry Dance, takes place in the Cornish town of that name. It is thought to have its origins in a pagan festival celebrating the coming of spring. The word furry is possibly derived from the Cornish word meaning fair or festival. The choice of date may be associated with the cult of St. Michael the Archangel, patron saint of Helston, whose main feast day is the 29th of September, but who is celebrated as protector of Cornwall on the 8th of May. The programme for the day features a number of dances along the narrow streets of the town, sometimes passing through private houses and gardens, performed to a traditional tune played by the local band. The first at 7am is for people who will be working later in the day. In mid-morning, the children dance dressed in white and at noon the principal dance begins. The men wear top hats and morning coats with a lily-of-the-valley buttonhole. The women wear long dresses in bright summer colours and large fancy hats. The town is decorated for the occasion with flowers and greenery brought in from the local countryside. The Halston Furry Dance was lovingly described in a song by the musician and composer Katie Moss, written in 1911. In 1977, this was brought to the attention of a wider public, 
when a recording of the tune by the Brighouse and Rastic Brass Band reached number two in the British pop charts. Playing the record on his morning radio show, the DJ Terry Wogan began singing along to parts of the tune, which irritated some listeners but amused others. For the benefit of the latter, he eventually released a vocal version of the full song, which made it to number 21 in January 1978. On the 9th of May in 1949, Prince Rainier III succeeded his grandfather as head of the state in Monaco. Also on the 9th of May in 1955, West Germany formally joined NATO. On the 10th of May 1957, Princess Margaret visited Hartcliffe Housing Estate in South Bristol and opened Hare Clive Primary School. The 10th of May also sees the birthday of Irish singer and campaigner Bono, who was born in 1960. The 11th of May in 1949 saw Siam officially change its name to Thailand. The 11th of May 1981 also saw the premiere of the musical Cats by Andrew Lloyd Webber, held in London. 1949 on the 12th of May, the Berlin blockade by Soviet forces was finally lifted after 11 months. 277,264 Flights had had to be made to fly in food and essential supplies, costing the Allies £200 million. And on the 13th of May in 1954, the St. Lawrence Seaway Act was signed by US President Dwight D. Eisenhower, authorising the construction of a series of canals that would allow ocean-going vessels to reach the Great Lakes from the Atlantic Ocean. A huge thank you has to go out to the stars of the show, and that's those who make the story come to life. We have the lovely Catherine Ayres and Henry Arnold, as well as Emma Clee from Bradley Stoke Radio. We've got Molly Jeffries and Joe Wilson from St. Stephen's Drama Group here in Bristol. We've also got Tony Allen, who lives all the way up in Worcester. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>